So we live in a modern world. And honestly, this modern world we have has added a lot to our lives. If we think about it, if we were to go back in time and look at past kings and queens and rulers of nations, they would be incredibly jealous of how much power each and every one of us has. I mean, think about the fact that every single one of you, for the most part, will have a cell phone in your pocket or in your purse or left in the car. There is more computing power in your cell phone by a factor of 10 than we had when we went to the moon. And that was just a few years ago. Imagine the, the, the library at Alexandria, which was known for being an incredible library, and yet your phone can access more books. Think about all of the diseases, all of those diseases that we have conquered with modern medicine. Simple things like an infection killed people for millennia, and yet we beat it with a little bit of mold that we turned into penicillin. Think about travel. Think about how it was measured in how far you could walk in a day or how far you could go on a single horse. And now, if you're up for it, you can fly on the other side of the world in 15 hours. How amazing is that? Or how about a nice little jaunt of, a, you know, 30 miles away? You could get there in about 30 minutes, unless you break the speed limit. But that's a different, different lesson. Think about sanitation. You know, I'm a history buff. Sanitation in the old world is nasty. I'm so glad that my history classes were not scratch and sniff because they would have been disgusting. History smelled. Sanitation was running down the middle of the street. And there's a reason why people died from things that were gross. Think about the wealth that we have. Think about that we can turn on heat. We can turn on AC. We can get a cold drink of water. Think about the freedoms that we enjoy. These are all things that are modern. They are things that people hundreds if not thousands of years ago would have been astonished. Kings and queens would have been jealous of what we have. And yet, for all that the modern world has done, it has subtracted from our lives as well. One of the things that is subtracted is it subtracted wonder, awe, beauty, transcendence. Transcendence is that idea that there's something greater than all of this that provides meaning. See, our modern world has taken that and pulled it out, and we no longer think of the world as having meaning. And we cope with this, don't we? We cope with this by longing. We long for an echo of something more, don't we? Something beyond this world. You don't believe me? Okay, let me show you. Last year, in the top 10 movies of the year, seven of them were action films involving heroes who win in the end. And five of those movies were heroes with superpowers. And you say, okay, yeah, Pastor John, we were just coming out of a pandemic, and everybody wanted a good, happy story. No, no, wait. The last two decades, the last 20 years, 70% of the highest grossing movies of every single year are a superhero movie. A movie involving a hero bigger than the world, bigger than the, 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 the danger in front of him, and winning. See, that's the thing. People didn't just, oh, I happened to turn this on. They went to the theater and paid the money to see these movies because we all long for a hero. We long for someone to come in and save the day. 
Because, see, here's the thing. Our, our, our worldview, the modern world, has subtracted transcendence and wonder. But it's been absolutely unable to subtract suffering and evil and pain. What a terrible bargain we've made with this modern way of viewing things in that we get rid of all the things that made life good and we can't touch the things that make life difficult. Easter is speaking to this thing directly. The events of Easter address not only the most undeserved of all human suffering, but they bring back to the point that reality is transcendent. Reality is wonderful. It is beautiful. There is meaning. So today, if you will open up your Bibles or your cell phones to the Bible, go to John chapter 20. We're going to see today that this simple passage, this well-known passage, the one that we would sing and, and, and talk about every single year at Easter, shows us there is more to this world than just what we see in front of us. So our big idea, if you like taking notes and you want to keep track, this is our big idea. The resurrection is a true story that radically reframes the world. You can either accept that reality or you can reject it. You can accept it or you can deny it. So let's break this phrase down for a second. How does Jesus' resurrection affect my daily life? Well, the first thing it does, it's a true story. What that means is you can't just put it off to the side and say it's a myth. You can't just say, hey, guess what? This didn't really happen. No, it did happen. You can't pretend it didn't. The next part of that, that opening statement, it's a radical reframing of the world. It reframes the whole world. Kyle, if you put that back up there again so they can see the whole thing. It reframes it. It radically changes it. So there, there's always a before and after with crazy world events. And quite literally, Jesus' death and resurrection really splits time. There's before Jesus rose and there's after Jesus rose. And everything is different. And then last, you can either accept this reality, you can accept reality, or you can reject it. See, there's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. You either belong to him or you don't. Your wagon's hitched to him or it's not. There's no a little bit. He cannot stand for that. He will not allow us to just be a little bit about Jesus. See, the world that we live in is people walking around in a dream state. They're imagining a certain world that is not the world that is real. Jesus comes here and he says, this is the real world. The real world is that a man, the God-man, died in our place and rose again. We now live in a world where resurrection happens. It's a different world. And you can't be, well, I'm for the resurrection, but I'm not really for the resurrection, but I'm kind of, you can't do that. It's either one or the other. The dream world or the real world. So there's all sorts of arguments people make about the resurrection, they can talk about different things that they see or different philosophical arguments and stuff like that. John doesn't do that here. Instead, what John does is John says, this is what I saw. You guys need to know what I saw. So in a minute when we get into the passage, he's the other disciple writing his gospel to kind of explain what he saw. This is not a, I have a friend whose brother's uncle saw this kind of story. 
This is a, I was there, I saw it kind of story. John is giving his testimony. John is saying, I saw it. Now you need to deal with it. What are you going to do? This world that John lays out for us is vastly different than we thought. It's a place where a dead man, an executed criminal who was certifiably dead, comes back to life and explains to us how to have life like him. This is the world that John brings us into. So the first point we see is it is a true story. Resurrection is a true story. So let's read it. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes, cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The resurrection is a true story. So notice the first thing we see right in verse 1. We see three specific phrases. Now on the first day of the week... And early, which translated it means very early, while it was dark. John's making a point here. John is saying the darkness has not been broken by the light just yet, but it will be. You will see this. This is the dawning of a new day. As Mary leaves at the end of the story that we're looking at today, the sun is up, light is shining. John loves that light versus dark. He's making a point here of saying the light hasn't dawned yet, but it's going to dawn in this story. So where are we at? What's happened here? So it's Sunday morning on Passover week, and it has been a brutal week for the disciples. If you remember, last Sunday would have been the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when the entire city of Jerusalem is cheering for Jesus, and by Friday they're asking for his crucifixion. Jesus, the beloved teacher, has been brutally killed. It started with a beating that turned to a flogging. His back would have been ripped to shreds, exposing bones and internal organs. He was then crucified, the slow, excruciating death of suffocating in your own bodily fluids. Then his side is pierced, which actually was his heart. They went through the ribs, up into the sack around his heart, and punctured his heart, and water and blood flowed out, meaning he was dead. One author I read this week said, Jesus was in critical condition before the cross. After the cross, he was most assuredly dead. If they'd have taken him down off the cross halfway through the crucifixion, not even modern medicine today would have a 100% chance of saving him. They put the odds of him surviving even an hour on the cross of about 5%. And Jesus was up there for hours before he gave up his spirit. So then Saturday, the disciples, instead of celebrating the Passover, they're hiding, some of them fleeing to get away from what they think is coming for them as well. Sunday morning, Mary gets up early to go to the tomb. Why? Because she's going to prepare Jesus' body for being in the ground for the next year or two. 
The Jewish culture was, was to take the body and leave it exposed, wrapped in linens, but leave it exposed to the elements so that that way the, the, the decomp decomposition would happen and the bones would be left. And then they would collect the bones and move them to a family plot. This is why the bones of the patriarchs in the Old Testament are always moving around. She gets there and she discovers the tomb is open. She assumes someone's stolen Jesus' body. So she runs to the disciples. She finds Simon, Peter, and John. He tells them. They sprint to the tomb. John, being younger and a little bit more spry, gets there first. Peter gets there second. This man who denied Jesus three times, Thursday evening and early Friday morning, he barges right in. And what they see astonishes them. They see Jesus' grave clothes sitting right there as if he took his time taking them off. And his head covering folded up neatly like you would fold up a bed. What does this all mean? Well, first thing people will say is they'll say, oh, they just went to the wrong tomb. It was the wrong one. But if you look in John chapter 19, verse 41, look what it says. It says, now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb. No one had been laid. So Mary, who was standing right there when Jesus died on the cross, saw what tomb he went to. She went back to the same tomb, as did Peter and as did John. So it's not they went to the wrong place. Because that would have been a really easy one to fix, right? Oh, Jesus is risen. You mean the one over in the right tomb? They, they couldn't do this. It was the correct tomb. Note the surprise here. Mary and the disciples are not expecting this, which is really ironic because Jesus is very repetitive. He's like a record that's skipping. He says, I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect. He says it over and over and over again. And then they're standing here and they go his body's gone you kind of just want to go come on get it disciples see the disciples didn't get it until after it had happened yet despite all of this they're not looking for the resurrection now this illustrates a bigger point and i think we need to get this is that the re idea of resurrection was not common it was not something that people all throughout judea and throughout the medieval and early medieval world even thought could happen all right? We like to look at it and we go, oh, those simpletons in the first century. You know, they believed in so many superstitions. They cannot possibly be right about a resurrection. But let me put this forward for you. The people in the first century knew more about death than we do because they saw it all the time. See, back in these days, people didn't go to hospitals to die. They just died. These people, you know, by the time you were the age 18, you probably had witnessed three to four siblings die. You might have witnessed a parent die in childbirth. You most definitely would have witnessed hundreds of animals that you would have killed because you killed them to eat them. So you would have known about death. These people knew that when something's dead, it stays dead. We say, well, but wait a sec, what about, what about comas? People fall into comas all the time. That's why in Israel... If someone fell into a coma and it wasn't clear that they were dead, you waited three days before you buried them because then that way you would know that that coma was actual death. See, we have this chronological snobbery that we like to look back and say, oh, they clearly missed it. Not only did they know more about death, but they actually thought resurrection was a bad idea. The Sadducees and Pharisees were constantly debating it, and it wasn't ever one person resurrecting. It was the whole nation resurrected. And the, Jew, uh, the Greeks and the Romans, they hated the idea of resurrection. 
They said resurrection was terrible. They believed the soul was good and the body was bad. And so the worst thing possible would be for your soul to leave your body and then get thrown back into it. This world did not expect resurrection. This world was not ginned up to have Jesus resurrect. Instead, this was the last thing on their minds. So why does Mary run back to the disciples? Well, she's a woman. She probably was with the other women. Some of the other accounts talk about several women together. They think that there has been a grave robbery. And so they're going, we don't want a chance that those guys will do something to us. So she runs back to the disciples. She's fearful. She runs to Peter and John. But note what she still calls Jesus, right? She thinks Jesus is dead. She's not figured out that he's resurrected yet. She still thinks he's dead. And she says, they have taken my Lord's body. Even in death, Mary is still bowing the knee to Jesus. So let's talk about this. How do we know that this is a historical fact? Well, I'm going to give you six different proofs from this passage. The first three are indirect, meaning they're not specifically there, like something you could say, this is what it is, but it's kind of inferred. The first one, if you're going to make up a resurrection story, the last person on earth you want to find the fact that the body's been gone, taken away, is a woman. And this was because in this culture at this time period, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court, both for the Greeks, for the Romans, and for the Jews. And so if you're going to make up a story about this make-believe person uh, resurrecting from the dead, you're not going to have it be a woman that finds him. As a matter of fact, you're going to have it be two upstanding men of good families because their testimony would count. So that's the first indirect proof we see. The second indirect proof is the fact that if you're making up this story, why would it be that the disciples don't get it? I mean, they've been walking around with Jesus. Like I told you, he's been repeating this over and over again. So if I'm a disciple and I'm writing this story, it's like, well, none of the other disciples got it, but I did. None of the other ones got it, but we, they don't. The disciples look terrible in this. The first thing they think is, who stole the body? Not, you know, Jesus is a good teacher, and I really paid attention, and I remember this. No, they don't get it. And then third, another indirect proof is, why all the mystery? Why all the, the, the kind of the quietness? Jesus kind of sneaks up on Mary here in a minute. And even later, he doesn't go right into the temple and announce himself, I'm here. Why does he not do that? Why the mystery? Because that's the way it actually happened. Because if we were writing fiction, we wouldn't write it this way. So what are the direct proofs? Well, right here in this passage, you see three things that John's laying out that happened. The first one is the stone, the second one is the burial cloths, and the third one is the face cloth. So let's walk through these, because I think it's important that from time to time, we do some apologetics. An apologetic means to defend the faith. It's not to apologize, it means to defend it. So how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? The first one is the stone. It says, the stone had been removed from the tomb. The stone was rolled away, the body was removed. So the first thing we see is that the stone is that gone. So that means something has happened. Something has happened. The stone is gone. The soldiers are gone. The seal is gone. The body is gone. Now this is not enough to say Jesus has risen into a new body, but it does tell us something happened. And if this is all we had, we'd, okay, we'd be on shaky ground to say he rose from the dead. But something for sure happened. So that's our first proof. The stone was rolled away. The second one is the burial cloths. It says, the linen cloths were lying there. 
If you're going to steal a body and you're worried about getting caught, you're not going to take the time to unwrap it. And even when we see Lazarus, when Lazarus is uh, revived, because Lazarus had to die again, poor guy had to die twice, right? Lazarus is revived by Jesus, brought back to life. They had to unwrap him because he couldn't do it himself. So when it says the linen cloths were lying there, literally it means lying there neatly, as in the same shape of where Jesus had been. If Jesus had swooned, if he had just passed out on the cross, remember, he's got holes in his wrists, he's got a hole in his heart, his back is ripped to shreds, and he's wrapped up in 75 pounds of linen. He would have had his hands crossed like this, almost like a straight jacket. How would he have done it? It would have been tearing and ripping, but that's not what we see. Instead, we see this orderly laying out. John 19, 39 says there were 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe and all of the cloths and spices. See, what I like here is it's like, it's like Jesus is taking his time, isn't it? Like Jesus has just defeated death. For me, you know, if it was me and I'm a fallen man and I get that, if I had just defeated death, I'm just, yes, let's go. Let's get on with the saving people. But here it's like Jesus goes, yeah, I got some time. I'm just going to unwind all of this. Maybe, maybe he beamed out of it. I don't know. But whatever was there, those cloths are laying there calmly. They're just sitting there. Death had no hold on this man. And it gets better. Proof number three, the face cloth. It says the face cloth was folded in a place by itself. Even if you steal the body, so even if you unwrap it, right? You unwrap the body because you're like, we're going to leave that here, whatever. You're going to unwrap the head and you're just going to set it off to the side. No, it stopped and they folded it, right? I can't get my kids to fold their pajamas, put them away. But Jesus stops and he folds this up. Why? He wants to show he's not crawling out of here. He's soaring out of here. The king is alive. The king is alive. You wouldn't have done this had it been grave robbers. You know, and another kind of indirect one is that this, this book gets the Jewish way of burial. The Egyptians balm, embalmed people. The Romans and the Greeks, they burned people. The Jews, they wrapped them up, and then they took their bones out a few years later. So we, this, is, this is absolutely correct. This is put out there, historically accurate, and there's no other sense to be made of this other than Jesus rose from the grave. So we see it's a true story that radically reframes the world. It's a true story that radically reframes the world. Look, look at verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb also went in. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. It's a true story that radically reframes the world. Now, Peter leaves first, but he does not arrive first. I, this quote is too good to not share. One author says, fullbacks like Peter are only good for about 50 yards at a time. Translation, he's a big boy who's not in very good shape cardiovascularly. Okay? I love that. John gets there first, and John waits, and then Peter goes in. So what does John do? It says John went in, and when he saw it, he believed. Now, what did he believe? Well, the next verse tells us, it says, they hadn't figured out that scripture said Jesus would raise from the dead, but John figured it out by what he saw. 
John saw the evidence and he went, yes, he has risen from the dead. Jesus had literally been raised. He is literally the Lord. Death is literally defeated. Everything that Jesus said is true. Imagine the rush that John has here. He's starting to put it all together. The wheels are turning and he's going, wait, if that, oh, if he resurrects, then we resurrect. Whoa! This, I mean, that's, that's the only word that works here. He goes, oh my word, is this really what happens? And this is what John wants us to see in writing this. See, John's testimony is a window to what happened for us. Let me give you an example of this. John Piper writes it this way. He says, your doorbell rings and one of your friends, you answer the door and your friend is standing in front of you. The friend says, I have some bad news. Your brother, Jim, is dead. You say, no, no, I don't believe that. I, I can't. I just saw him this morning. He's not dead. Your friend says, we went to the game together, and as we were leaving, a car went off the, the road and over the curb and killed him. I waited for the, the ambulance, but he died before they got there. And then you would say softly, I see. So what does the I see mean? It means that the witness of your friend has become a window into seeing what happened. The reality has become plain to you because the witness has become clear and you can see through it to what has happened. And that's exactly what John is doing for us right here. John's saying, you know, look at me, but look through me and see what I saw, and now you can be in the same spot I am. Just like when John walked in and he saw the clothes sitting there and he saw the the head cloth laying there, John is saying, now you've all seen it. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to believe? Then it says, they turn and they walked home. It says they walked to their homes. So they walked together and then went to their individual homes. What did they talk about? What do you think? Did Peter and John share notes? Were they both still astonished? Is Peter still trying to figure out what's going on? What we do know is that the sun began to rise at that moment. Jesus' light was beginning to show. It's a true story that radically reframes the world. You can accept it or you can reject it. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know who it was, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've lain him, that I may take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This resurrection is a true story. It radically reframes our world. Will you accept it or will you reject it? 
So it starts off, it says, but Mary stood. This is a a Greek word that we have a hard time translating. It means she stood resolutely like a stone wall. She said, I'm not moving from this spot until I figure out where Jesus' body went. I'm not moving. I love what Charles Spurgeon, a a, uh, 1800s pastor, said. When a soul is seeking Christ, nothing but Christ's own word will satisfy it. This woman was not content with the angels and what they said. Though they said to her, woman, why weepest thou? Those shining ones did not appear to comfort her at all. She went on weeping. She told them why she wept, but she did not stop. And believe me, if the angels of heaven cannot content a heart which is seeking after Jesus, the angels of the churches can't do it either. We may preach as best we can, and the words of man will never satisfy the cravings of the heart. The seeker's heart needs Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is where Mary's at. You know what? Don't bother me, angels. Angels, you got nothing for me. I want my Jesus. Gardener, you come in here. Okay, tell me where he is. I want to be as near to him as possible. Even if he's dead, I want to be near him. Jesus many times is not recognized. I don't think it necessarily was that he was keeping it from people. I think that definitely he looked way different, especially considering the last time she saw him. The last time she saw him, He was barely intelligible as a human being, bloodied and beaten to a pulp, torn down off of a cross. They would have not been gentle with him. They would have treated him like garbage. She never expected to see him again, and now she's seeing him not only as she had seen him before, but in this dazzling resurrected body. I love that Mary wants to care for Jesus' body even if he is dead. What devotion we have. Jesus says, who are you seeking? He asks a simple question. Our Lord is a perfect counselor, isn't he? Cuts right through. Who are you looking for? This is a penetrating question because really, honestly, there's kind of a gentle rebuke here. And and Jesus is going to say, you're thinking too low. We need to elevate your eyes. We need to bring your eyes up and recognize it's not a man but the God of the universe that you've been walking around with. And then in verse 16, I love this. This is Jesus' shortest sermon ever. Four letters. He says, Mary. The good shepherd knows his sheep by name, and she turns and is saved. Spurgeon again says, In the simple utterance of her name, there were tones she could not mistake. It was the sweetest music she had ever heard since her Lord's last message from the cross. Mary, why surely she must have thought it's the master's voice. The word Rabboni means more than master. Mary seems to be saying, greatest and best of all teachers, I know your voice. Now that you've called me, I recognize you and I await your instructions. And then I love this, it says, she turned. This turning around. I wonder if it was like one of those reveals in the movie where something happens and they just kind of are slowly. Or is it more like what it probably was like was she whips the head around. Either way, in that one to two seconds, she goes from B.C. to A.D. The world has just done that. She has done that in this microcosm and she becomes the very first person to interact with Jesus as the risen Lord. This word turned is the same word that we see the word repent. It means to turn and go another direction. And what a direction she has to go now. 
The second before this turn, this woman was in despair. An inconquerable death had won. The second after the turn, now she's in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. What a rush, those two seconds. I mean, those two seconds right there are, we we need to write hundreds of thousands of books about those two seconds of that change from one to the other. She is now able to stand and realize this world has meaning. This world has a point. And the point is not get everything you can, YOLO, you only live once. No, the point is there is true living and it's available through Christ and Christ alone. So she has turned, she's repented, she's gone a different direction. Now will she obey? Will she submit? Look at verse 17. He says, do not cling to me. I mean, you you think about Mary. Mary's going, I'm never letting you out of my sight again. You're staying, I'm I'm right with you everywhere, okay? I mean, Mary's not gonna lose him again. And Jesus goes, don't cling to me because I'm I'm gonna ascend to heaven 50 days later. I'm gonna ascend to heaven. I'm gonna take a human body into heaven and because of that, now my spirit, the third member of the Trinity, can live in everyone. See, Jesus was, was, was limited to the locality of Israel. But after Jesus' ascension, he is not limited in anywhere. He will be as intimate with us as he was with Mary. That woman who even just being near his dead, bruised, bloodied body was what she desired. That kind of intimacy where we will want to be with our Lord no matter what is available to us today because of the Spirit. And the amazing thing is, is Jesus is not going to stay in heaven. He's going to return bodily to here, and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. What a promise. Verse 18, Mary is then sent out. She becomes the first Christian missionary, the first missionary this side of Jesus dying and raising from the dead. And she's going to go with the message to the disciples. See, it's not an accident that Mary is the first missionary. There's teaching here. Even even in Jesus' death and resurrection, he is teaching us about us. See, Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a follower of Christ. Remember, women were absolutely maligned in this culture. They were pieces of property. They were not held in high esteem. And Christ is busting through that in everything, even in his first missionary. But it goes even deeper than that. Mary Magdalene was not somebody that you would have put up as most likely to be a missionary. She has a very checkered history. And yet God chose her to be the missionary. So if you're here today, And you go, this is not for me because, Pastor John, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. And the answer is, you're right, I don't. But God does. And Jesus Christ on Friday took care of that. The question is, is will you allow him to take care of you? Because that's the next step. Jesus chose this woman with a checkered past to be his herald of the kingdom. It doesn't matter what you've done. Salvation is based on something outside of us, and that is Christ. And I love this little throwaway line here. It says, go and tell my brothers. And then it says, your God, my God, your Father, 
my father. Go tell your brothers. I love this. See, here's the thing. Don't hear me when I'm telling you that you need to submit to Jesus Christ today because I want you to join New Life Church Gladstone. That's not the point. The point is join the family. Become a part of God's family. This is a family that has millions upon millions of people in it, not because of ethnicity, not because of our bloodline, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did on Friday. And look at this. He calls his disciples, not my disciples, not my followers, not my students. He says, my brothers and my sister, Mary. This is where you get to be. You get to be a part of God's family, and God takes great care of his family. And the first thing he deals with is our root problem, which is we have an obstacle between us and God. He says, go tell my brothers. We've been covered by his blood if we believe and we turn and we obey. We are his. So the resurrection of Jesus. This is a true story. It happened. It radically reframes the world and your world. Now, are you going to accept it or are you going to reject it? Are you going to continue to live in the dream world that our world is happily doing right now? Or are you going to live in the actual real world which says a man who was God died on your behalf and rose from the dead so that you could be in his family, a part of the family of God for all of eternity, forever and ever. Will you enter that reality today? Jesus purchased it. It's right there. Or are you going to reject it? My prayer for you today is that you will accept it and not reject it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story from your servant John. Thank you that he wrote these words down. Lord, and, and, and you... Even as you inspired him to write it, you had us in mind. You had our hearing these words today and what they've done on our hearts in mind. What an incredible gift that you've given this to us. Lord, thank you for that slow unwrapping of the rags, for that folding of the headcloth, that calling out to Mary and saying, go, tell my brothers because that story is still being told even to this day, and we praise you for that. Lord, even before we knew you, you loved us. I pray, Lord, that we would give in to that, that we would succumb to what is really real, that this world is not what the world says it is, this dreamland. Instead, the real world is your world. I pray today, this would be our new birthday. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.